quiet tonight. We're going to be looking in Hosea chapter 6. Let's all stand together, please, as we reverence the reading of God's Word, a message I call Promises or Platitudes. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for He hath torn, and He will heal us. He hath smitten, and He will bind us up. After two days will He revive us, and the third day He will raise us up, and we shall live in His sight. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Promises or platitudes. Most of us, I think probably, I may be wrong, but I won't assume tonight, but uh, a lot of you might identify with my experience uh, when uh, a brother or maybe even a sister hits you and you hit them back. But the first person that hits is never the one that gets caught. Was that the way it was in your family? That's the way it was in my family. The first hitter never gets caught. It's when you hit them back that you get caught. And then come those terrible, dreaded words. You apologize and tell your brother or sister you love them. I'm sorry. I love you. Now, was this something that we meant, or is it just something that we said because we were told to say it or knew we had to say it? You see, a platitude is a trite or meaningless saying. It can be a cliche, but not necessarily so. Just a trite, a meaningless saying that is designed to quell emotional social or cognitive unease that it it is something that we say to either make ourselves or whoever we're talking to or whoever our audience is in that case it would be the parents here's something that makes us all feel better and kind of diffuses the situation we don't mean it we're just saying what we know needs to be said platitude our text tonight contains a message uh, And I told you before, uh, Hosea preached about eight different messages in the book of Hosea, and this is one of them. Uh, It is a message that begins with a response that the people of Israel were making to God. It is a statement of repentance. Come and let us return unto the Lord. That's a concept of repentance. When we turn around, when we return to God, when we've been going away from God, but we turn to God, that's a statement of repentance. Let us return unto the Lord. And uh, then, of course, not only is there repentance, but it's that story of revival, of restoration. He will heal us. He has smitten us. He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. I tell you, when you're talking about repentance and revival, you're talking about two things that are precious to any preacher's heart. Repentance and revival. The question is, are we looking at a true promise on the, high, on the part of Israel? Or was it just a platitude? Did they really mean what they said? Or was it just something they were saying to try to avoid the judgment of God? Something they were saying because they knew it was what God wanted them to hear? Something they were saying because it made them feel better? Because they knew they had done the right thing? We need to return to God. We need to get right with God. Or as we like to put it so often today. We need to get back in church. 
you know, and let me just say, if you're out of church, yes, you do need to get back in church, but is it a promise or is it a platitude? You see, we know how this so often plays out. We've seen it in our lives and other lives. I mean, we get uh, on the wrong path. We uh, start doing things we shouldn't do, maybe. Uh, maybe we do get a little bit lax in our, in our attendance in church. Our prayer life is uh, almost non-existent. Our devotional life is even less so. We've stopped reading the Bible. Our church attendance isn't what it should be. When we do go, it seems boring to us. But life is good. So even though our spiritual life might not be what it ought to be, everything else is going along pretty good. And then something happens. There's a wide variety of things that can happen. It could be a terrifying illness. We've had a lot of that in the last couple of years. It could be an accident. A sudden bout of rebellion on the part of a teenager that seems to be threatening their life and maybe our whole family could be sin that has settled down and then that spiritual vacuum if our spiritual life is not strong as it should be then it's easy for us to turn to sin it could be some terrible thing that happens that brings our marriage maybe to the verge of disaster a relationship that goes sour business setback there are all kinds of things it's amazing how quickly we can run to God as believers, I mean, after all, we know that's what you're supposed to do. Suddenly, the sin that didn't seem so bad becomes painful, painfully and even hideously apparent to us. Suddenly, we, we find ourselves maybe saying, how could I have done this? How could I have allowed that to come into my life? Suddenly we see sin as sinful. We bombard heaven then with our prayers of repentances. And we're as sincere as we can be about them. I'm going to change. I'm going to get in church. It's going to be different. God, please forgive me. I'll never leave you out of my life again. Are we sincere? Or is it just a platitude we're saying what we know that we need to say but I, we've got an ulterior motive what we really want is God to fix whatever's wrong it could be real it could be genuine it could be just a platitude what we need to see about this text tonight is that this is God speaking to Hosea and if you don't look carefully even though you'll read through it it's right there in front of you you'll miss it and it's a critical point God is speaking to Hosea and what he is doing is reciting the things that his people Israel have been saying to him. So when you see our text, come and let us return unto the Lord, God is quoting to Hosea what Israel has been saying. That happened a lot in the prophets. You know, let's remind ourselves every now and then, hey, self, let me tell you something. Remember, when we're praying to God, hey, God is listening. God's listening. He hears what we say. He even hears what we don't say. I mean, God is listening. So now he's bringing a message to Hosea. This is what we're talking about. This is what your people, this is what my people are saying. 
Certainly when we start talking about repentance and revival and returning to God, God takes us seriously. He's brought judgment against them and now they've responded. Uh, let's read it again. Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as a morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain and the former rain to the earth. Israel, you see, had lived under the looming shadow of God's judgment for a long time, but now it has finally arrived, and, and God has promised it to them, and so it prompts this response. And make no mistake about it, folk, this is a wonderful response. It is a wonderful response. Notice that it is grounded in repentance, so that they make this decision not just individually, but corporately to return to the Lord, to repent to turn from going away from God and return to the Lord. What an incredible thing it is when God can sit on high and He can hear the prayers, not just of one family, not just of one man or one woman, not just of a church, uh, but maybe of a whole city suddenly that is crying out to Him in repentance. Think about a whole nation on their knees before God, crying out in repentance. Can you imagine such a thing that hap like that happening in America? Many of us were alive to see it happen in America. September the 11th. You remember it. 9-1-1. What happened that next Sunday? I can tell you what, our church in Branson was packed to the gills and overflowing. We had prayer meetings all over that town. People were making professions of faith, crying out to God. I'd walk down the street as a preacher and people would see me. Maybe they'd see me on a stage at a prayer meeting. Aren't you a pastor? Yeah, please pray for me. Yeah. Halls of Congress had prayer. Happened. Can you imagine that? 20 years, we've come a long, long way. On a very basic and fundamental level then, when uh, people, when not just individuals, but certainly even individuals, but when it goes beyond that and whole people groups begin to cry out to God in repentance. Oh, God hears that. You see, that is the admission that something is wrong. It is the admission that we have sinned. One of the characteristics of a rebellious and unrepentant heart is not so much that they refuse to repent. It's that they refuse to acknowledge that they've done anything wrong or that anything is even wrong. No one will ever be saved. No one will ever return to God. There'll never be a revival until people first admit, I have sinned. Come and let us return to the Lord. Inherent in that statement is that I know I've left him. I've left him. And I know I need to come back to him. What a great statement that is. 
then they acknowledged the character, the truth of God's character. Not only did they admit the truth about their sins, but they admitted then that their problems were due to the judgment of God. The problem that their nation was experiencing, the problem their families were experiencing, the trouble that they were having as a nation that was driving them to God. This was God's judgment. So many never understand that the problems that they're having in their life have been brought to them or allowed to come into their lives as the chastening of a loving Heavenly Father. See, it's possible for Christians to settle down for years and live with problems that, that are constantly getting worse, with difficulties that they can't escape from, with deep wounds that never really heal, all because they fail to recognize that the things that are happening to them are coming because of the judgment of God. And oftentimes that's simply because they have a false concept of God. Well, do you mean God is a God of punishment? God is a God of judgment? They've forgotten what Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. And that passage is quoted, so it's not just the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament as well. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 8, But if you be without, with this addition, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Hebrews 12, 8. By the way, that's the King James Version. I read it for the sake of emphasis. God used some strong language because He knows we need it. If you're one of God's children, then yes, He is going to chasten you. He will correct you. And yes, that means sometimes the problems that we encounter, the difficulties that we experience are the very things that God brings to us then to make us turn from our sin and turn back to Him. And that's what they said in Hosea. God has smitten us. God has struck us. God has torn us. And if you're thinking tonight, well, God wouldn't do that. Listen, you just don't know God. In fact, when God uses the word for chastening in the New Testament, he adds to it the word scourging. Now look that up in your history books. Now there are a number of ways that God's corrective behavior or God's corrective actions can play out in our lives. Uh, there are, of course, inevitable consequences to sinful behavior. Uh, the reason that God tells us to avoid sin is because it hurts. It hurts. If we were into commuter communication, we could all put a bumper sticker on our car that says, Sin kills. Sin kills. Put it on Facebook. Sin's a killer. Sin hurts. So there are inevitable consequences to sinful behavior. It hurts us. It hurts us. What do you mean by that? I mean, sometimes all God has to do to chasten us is simply let sin play out its course. Sin hurts. Sin's painful. Sin's a killer. It'll hurt you. It'll hurt the people you love. It'll hurt me. Hurt the people I love. Sin. Sin hurts. Second way then that God brings correction, I like to call, He turns the lion loose. See, God puts a hedge of protection around His children, and that hedge of protection was designed to keep uh, the lions, the predators, away. 
what uh, Job said, what the devil said about Job. Have you not put a hedge around him? Why? Because it keeps the lines out. But imagine if God were to open up the hedge so that it's not closed in and just throw it open. And then that same hedge of protection becomes what? It becomes a prison. Because you're suddenly easy prey for the line. You've got no way to get out. Do you see what I'm talking about tonight? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us the mystery of lawlessness is already at work on the he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That is a prophetic statement and yet it gives to us a statement of biblical truth. The Holy Spirit works to restrain evil in our life but when we choose sin, that restraining effect goes away. Greater is he, John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is able to give us victory. But that only comes when we are walking with the Lord. In another era, people used an expression. We might start using it again as many of you as raising chickens these days. They used to talk about a fox in the hen house. That's a pretty good mental picture, isn't it? When we choose sin, that's what happens. God can just simply let the predators loose. His hedge of protection has just moved away. But then God may move against his, us himself. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, Jesus told the church at Ephesus, I am against you. I am against you. We saw that in our last chapter of Hosea where God described a number of things that he was going to do turn Israel back to himself. Israel's response then in this passage we see was rooted in their repentance. It was grounded on the truth of God's character and it confessed their dependence on the power of God. This is a very insightful and fundamental truth that Israel was saying to God in those days. God has torn us but God can heal us. I want to give you the truth tonight. If God tears us, only God can heal us. If God breaks us, only God can mend us. Only God can fix the things that he has broken. And they understood that. And that's a very, very insightful truth for God's people to remember. Because I'm afraid that too many churches today and too many ministries are designed around to fix the things that God has broken in order to cause us to return back to Him. And instead of turning back to God then, we can even design whole ministries around trying to help people to cope with their state of brokenness. When God stands ready, willing, and able to bring salvation and deliverance and healing, if they'd simply repent, turn from their sins, turn back to God. Only God can fix what he has broken. Then uh, Israel was talking a lot about what I like to call God's rapid response team. <laughs> he said, in two days, two days, it'll get two days, three days, third day, it'll all be fine. Two or three days. What they said was true. One of my favorite passages of scripture is when God went running out to meet the prodigal. You remember that passage? 
Aren't you glad that God didn't say to the prodigal, well, you know, I'll put you over here and we'll watch you for 10 years or so. And if, you, if you're really sincere, then I'll uh, think about maybe putting you back to your position. Is that what God said? Golly, you won't even find that in the living Bible. I mean, that, that's not anywhere. <laughs> what did he say? He put the robe. He hugged him up. Hawk pen, smell, filth, and all. Brought the robe out, put it on him, put the ring on his finger, which indicated a restoration to his former position, and maybe even more. Because the fact is that that younger brother who had returned in repentance was in a lot better shape now spiritually than the older brother who had stayed at home and had a heart full of bitterness and hate and wrath and who left the father's house as far as we know. As far as we, know we don't know whether they ever came back or not. You see, this young man came back in true repentance. He came back saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just let me work for you every day for the rest of my life. You don't even have to pay me, make me a slave. That's what he was saying. A slave in my father's house is better off than being where I'm at. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. God instantly and immediately responded to that repentance with restoration. So why do we cry out to God sometimes and nothing happens? Well, the answer to that is in God's response to Israel. We've seen Israel's response to God and we ask the question, is it a promise or a platitude? And God doesn't leave us to wonder. Verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud and like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. Your faithfulness is like dew. We know exactly what this means. I spent 10 years in Branson, Missouri. Some of you lived there too. And you know what it was like because almost every morning you woke up with a cloud over the city. It didn't mean necessarily it was going to rain. Sometimes it did. But most of the time it just meant that cold water in Lake Tanicomo was working overtime. And in the, in the night it was able to build up a lot of condensation up there. And I'm not sure how it all works, but you'd wake up in the morning with a cloud. Sun would get up, all disappeared. We're maybe a lot more familiar with the morning dew. You know, I, I love morning dew. There's one of the great joys of my life. I know I'm a simple guy and I like simple things. I like walking barefoot through the dew. I do. This time of the year. I don't care for it much a little bit later. But right now, it's a good time. But if you're going to walk barefoot through the dew in your yard, you're going to have to get up early. Because when the sun gets up, 
dew's going to be gone. God said a lot to him when he said, your faithfulness is like the morning cloud or the morning dew. It's not going to be around for very long. This indicates a fundamental problem. Their promises, in spite of the fact that they were so profound. I mean, these are not a people who don't know their Bible. They know their Bible. They know what they need to say. They know what God wants to hear. But their hearts weren't in it. Their promises were just platitudes. Made them feel better, maybe. Made God, no, no, it didn't make God feel better. Might have made the prophet Hosea feel better for a little while, but even God clued him in right quick. Your faithfulness is like the morning cloud. He wasn't the only prophet who spoke of this. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Their lips draw nigh to me. Not their hearts. See, Israel thought they could call a meeting, get on their knees and tell God what he wanted to hear, offer a few sacrifices and everything would be okay. But those powerful principles that they prayed and talked about were just words rather than the true desire of their hearts to turn to God. And so God responds. And the first thing that he talks about, he says, is I have hewed them Uh, or slain them by the words of the prophets. His word was used to hew them. The word hew means to cut or to dig. It's like a rock cutter will hew out a stone. So what God is saying is that his prophets, his God called men then, would proclaim his word and it will seem like it is constantly cutting on us. Now there's a way that that happens and it blesses us. Uh, the, the word of God is like a fire that burns in our heart and yet it's a holy heart burn and we like it when we are convicted by the work of God by the word of God we feel it we know it yes the Holy Spirit may be touching us but immediately then we're able to recognize that what it, as what it is and we say what thank you God that you care enough about me to give me a message and to bring it to me by the power of the Holy Spirit of God what a precious thing it is when we hear the word and yes it cuts on us yes it hurts but it hurts us in a good way Because it shows us what we need to be doing. And we know that God hadn't given up on us and he's still working in us. But this can also become a very painful process. So that it seems to us that his word is just pounding us to pieces. And the preaching of the word then becomes a painful burden instead of a wondrous blessing. That's a sign that we're under the chastening of God. God's trying to tell us something. When God's word is preached in power and it's chipping away at the problems in our hearts, then that feels like life to us. But then under chastening, it just seems like it's going to kill us, something we need to get away from. 
Either way, our response is critical. You see, when we respond to the Word of God and we get right, then God hears from heaven and He forgives and He restores and He heals. Or we can go down the road and join another church. See, the preaching of God's Word was never designed to make us feel better while we're living a life of sin and rebellion. It's just not designed that way. It's not the way it was supposed to work. And so God's word is always working on us. It is always chipping away at us. Yes, God is always hewing us. But sometimes it goes a step further where it drives down deep in our hearts. And it is painful and it hurts. Sometimes it even makes us angry. It did them. Then... If people still don't turn back to God, then God is going to bring his judgment to bear. That's verse 5. He says, my judgment is like light. Two characteristics of light apply in this passage. Light, of course, illuminates. And when God moves in judgment, he will always do so in his people in such a way that we understand exactly why this is happening. If you ever find yourself going through a time of difficulty and saying, well, I wonder, could God be chastening me? I don't know why he'd be chastening me. Then If you're asking that question, then you're probably not being chastened. How do I know that? Because when God brings his judgment into life, he says it goes out like light. And there's an illuminating effect to light. That is that God always, if he's going to chasten us, he's always going to show us why he is doing it. Always. Light also moves rapidly. Like light, turning the light on, folk, you can't hide it. It can move very quickly. It can't be disguised. My judgment will be like light. Even to this day, we say, well, that's going to light you up. (laughs) Yeah, we know about that. That's God's judgment. God reminds us then of his priorities. In verse 6, he said, I want uh, mercy, not sacrifice. You know, Jesus quoted this passage twice. Twice in his ministry. Once in Matthew chapter 9, once in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus quoted this very passage twice. Both times he quoted it to the Pharisees. Condemning them for their judgmental, self-righteous spirit. Because they were so quick to condemn everybody else. And so easily then ignored the great gulf that was in their own heart. The emptiness that was in their own soul. Blinded to their own sin. Though they were busily exposing the sins of others. God told them, you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy over sacrifice that was not to say that their sacrifice was unimportant God himself had prescribed those but there was something more important than offering a sacrifice there was something more important than offering a burnt offering and that was to know God and to be right with him it is a sad sad day when we replace a vibrant real relationship with God with the dead works of religious expression. It's a sad day. 
doesn't mean that people don't do it, and they don't do it with some degree of effectiveness. Israel did it long ago. Many people still do it today. It's possible to go around with an empty heart. It's possible to go around not knowing God at all. And they keep trying to do more and more and more and more and more, and it never satisfies. It's part of God's judgment. It can happen to lost people who are trying to make themselves right with God or trying to act like they're right with God, but it can happen to save people too. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 then, But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood as bands of robbers lie in wait for a man. So the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There's harlotry of Ephraim. Israel, Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return captives of my people they transgress God's covenant Uh, the first thing that God says is their city of refuge became a place of violence and evil now you remember under the Old Testament economy uh, God placed such a high value on human life that even if you killed somebody on accident as we said just by accident There was an avenger of blood then who was responsible to bring judgment against you, even though it might have been by accident. And in those cases then, you could flee to the city of refuge, Gilead, this passage. And there you'd be protected uh, until your case could be decided. Uh, But you had to stay in the city of refuge because the avenger of blood could always... Come out, if you ever got out of there, you were, it was. And so this was a place then that was designed to provide safety and protection. But they took advantage of that then and turned it into a place where they could run and hide and commit all kinds of evil. The kind of place where uh, law enforcement basically was pushed away. And so it became a place of terrible violence and bloodshed. And lewdness, Shechem, a place of worship where people were to go and be restored. But instead it became a place where people were hurt. People who had been out in idolatry and who were guilty of all kinds of sexual immorality. uh, They could go to Shechem and there they could offer sacrifices. There they could worship God. But instead they saw these pitiful people coming in desperation, and they exploited them. So that the very place that should have been a place of worship, the very place that should have been a place of restoration, then became a place where people were taken advantage of. And their promiscuity, which had been bad before, became even worse. And so while they were talking about returning to God... While they were talking about how that God had torn them and God would heal them. While they were talking about how much they needed to get right with God. And if they would, then a couple of three days, everything would be fine. But God knew they didn't mean it. Because he looked down and he saw what was happening in the land and nothing changed. Just a platitude. 
Many years later, Jesus would stand in Jerusalem and look over it or stand outside of Jerusalem and look over it and he would say this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. One of the most fundamental things that we need to learn about God tonight is God's people. And we can see it demonstrated gloriously here in this Old Testament book of Hosea is that God wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. God wants to heal us more than we want to be healed. God wants to forgive us more than we want to be forgiven. God wants to save us, if you can imagine it, more than we want to be saved. God wants to deliver us more than we want to be delivered. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. I want to heal you. How often would I have gathered you together, Jesus said, but you would not. Uh, why did God run out to meet the prodigal? Because he knew he was sincere. Can we see tonight then that God knows when we mean it? when we say, God, I'm sorry. And he knows when we don't. He knows when we're truly turning back to him and he knows when we're just trying to get another form of blessing. He knows when we truly mean it, when we say, God, from now on, I'm, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be. And he knows when what we're really saying is, Lord, if you'll get me out of this jam, I'll really appreciate it. And then I'll get back to business. God knows. God knows. But aren't you glad that when we truly mean it, we serve the God that runs to meet us? That's the God I want to put before you tonight. See, so oftentimes we get uh, so used to our life just being what it is. We're enjoying life. Everything's going pretty smooth. And though we might talk about heaven and we might talk about God or talk about the guy upstairs, the truth is we don't really think about him a whole lot. But then something happens, and we know we need something. Maybe some of you are listening to this program Right now, it might not even be tonight, it might be years from now, you run across this program and you're listening because you're looking for something. You come to just that kind of experience. Your life is a mess. You know you need God. Tell me what I can do to get it fixed. I'm not going to tell you that tonight. But I can tell you how you can be right with God. I can tell you that. Because the Bible says that if we confess our sin, that means we agree with God. That God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when we repent, when we return to Him and we acknowledge our sin, then He is quick to forgive us. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, but He didn't stay buried. He rose again the third day to give the teeth, if you will, to that promise. Whosoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus proved that by his own victory over the grave. And he can give you that victory tonight. 
And he will if you'll ask him to. I can't tell you tonight about whether you're sincere or not. But God can. God can. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the promise he gives to those who are lost and who need to be saved. To those that are already his children, though, like the people in our text tonight in Hosea chapter 6, we have this issue put before us. Promises or platitudes. Let's stand together, please.